I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. And you can see who said that. This kind of raises the question, who do you trust this morning when you take the entire weight of your life, all the good and all the struggles and all of what happened and all of what is out there in the future? Who do you trust? So we began this Explore God series with the question, does life have a purpose? We moved into, is there a God? Then why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus really God? And today we're looking at, is the Bible reliable? Can I know God personally? Let me give you the Bible in 50 words. God created Eve wondered, Cain slew, Noah arced, Babel blundered. Sarah laughed, Jacob schemed, Joseph ruled. Bush talked, Moses balked, Pharaoh plagued, people walked. Sea divided, promise landed. Mary believed, Bethlehem star. Love talked, love walked, love died, love rose. Spirit flamed, word spread. God wins, church abides, your move. There have always been a lot of big questions about the Bible. And, and sometimes people ask questions just to ask questions, not so much because they're really looking for an answer, but there's another issue or there's something that, that they're struggling with that, that is different really than the, than the question that they're asking. And they're hoping maybe to get an answer to that, to that issue. I remember when I was asking those kinds of questions years ago. What are some of the big questions people have about the Bible today that they've really always had? What about all of the contradictions is the Bible is usually one of the first questions. What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Most of the contradictions or seemingly you know, issues of contradiction, if you really look at them, sit down, have patience, examine the texts, uh, you'll see that they're not really contradictions at all. One that I'll bring to your attention this morning in one of the Gospels, it talks about two angels being at the tomb after the resurrection. In another Gospel, it says an angel, uh, really not necessarily a contradiction. Uh, one apostle is saying there were two. The other apostle is saying an angel spoke. Doesn't mean when you say an angel that there isn't another one there. So it's not really a contradiction. It just takes a little bit of examination to sort things out. And most, most of what we look at comes to light when we take the time to figure out the details. How about this one? Isn't the Bible just a psychological crutch? Isn't the Bible a psychological crutch? Well, then you would have to say, isn't the Constitution of the United States of America a constitutional crutch? In your glove compartment, you might have a, a manual that helps you to understand your car. Isn't that a crutch for you? Isn't that a psychological crutch that you need a manual to figure out your Ford or your Chevy uh, or your Toyota or whatever it is that you're driving these days? Um, isn't, your, isn't your mom a crutch or your, your parents? Weren't they crutches when you were 
growing up as they provided for you structure and order. See, we all need structure and order. Where do you get that? How do you get that? Who do you allow to speak that structure and order into your life? And so there's no real, real issue to the idea of a, a psychological crutch because you have to then apply that across the board to every other area of your life. How about this? Does it matter what you believe? As long as you're sincere, I'm sincere, I really believe this, so why does it really matter? If I really want to get to Los Angeles, but I decide I'm gonna be sincere about getting there, but I'm gonna drive straight north, because I believe by driving straight north, somehow I'm gonna get there, I'm gonna see a polar bear before I ever get to Los Angeles. It, you, Sincerity isn't the issue in the bigger experience of life. Truth is the issue. Where do you get your truth? Who's able to speak that truth into your life? It's not simply about sincerity. How about this one? Isn't science at odds with the Bible? So you have science, which is an observational system toward truth. And you have the Bible, which is a revelational system toward truth. Let's look at science first, an observational system toward truth. Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, spent 237 weeks, 237 weeks on the London Times bestseller list, more than any other book, not counting the Bible or Shakespeare, he himself comments. Hawking says, not counting the Bible or Shakespeare, it was on there a long time. He states, his book, was so unexpectedly well-received because there is widespread interest in the questions, where did we come from? And why is the universe the way it is? In the foreword of his updated version of the book, he has this picture of the universe taken in 1996 by the Hubble telescope. There it is. And there he is, hawking for the first section of his book, states this uncategorically. On the observational side, by far the most important development has been the measurement of fluctuations of cosmic microwave background radiation in the universe. These fluctuations are the fingerprints of creation. Let's go back and look at that shot of the universe. The fingerprints of the universe. Interesting, interestingly, he chooses that word fingerprints. He's looking at this and he's going, you know, there are things that are happening. There are fingerprints of something. I'm looking out there. I'm trying to put it all together. I'm trying to, to figure it all out. He's trying to find what the truth is about life, what the truth is about how the universe came to be. Science is an observational system moving toward truth. The Bible is a revelational system toward truth. Actually, the Bible is revealing truth to us in a much different way. In the beginning, God created. And then Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus and God bring us another idea of creation fingerprints, don't they? Hawking. We see creation fingerprints in the background radiation. God, I put my fingerprints on all this. Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the one who created 
everything. His fingerprints are on you. As a matter of fact, you have fingerprints because he gave you fingerprints. It's just a whole different way of understanding. Miraculously, uh, I look at it as miraculously, in this great scientific book that Hawking wrote, there's a picture of God. If you go in just a very few pages, he's got this picture of God, the second day of creation by Julius Schnorr von Karasfeld, 1860. There's the, the world that God has made. Here's God flying above the world. It's a beautiful artistic representation. And if you look closely, you see fingers and the fingerprints of God are right there in his own book. Um, science is really not at odds with the Bible. There are great places of congruence. As a matter of fact, science exists because God exists with scientific thinking that he put into his creation. But let's look at 2 Peter. I'd like to get to the essence of what I want to say to you this morning about what the Bible is and what the Bible means. 2 Peter, the first chapter, verses 21, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit spirit. Scripture is something different. It's something different. Much like uh, the sails on a, on a great sailing vessel that could just hang there and, and have form and function, but until the, until the wind fills them, they don't get their stated purpose to the maximum expression of their stated purpose. It's sort of in the same way that the, the writers came to write about God and about faith and about life but by the power of the Holy Spirit, what they wrote was full and God was, was in sync with their personality. And God was in sync with their vocabulary. And God was in sync with every aspect of them writing down the things that were most important for us to understand. Does the Bible contain everything that there is to know about the world and everything in it? As you also know, you always get the question somewhere along the way, what about the dinosaurs? Well, the Bible is not going to write to you about things like that. But the Bible writes to you about everything, tells you everything you need to know for faith and life and salvation, redemption for the most important things God recorded by his Holy Spirit through human writers. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to do verses 10 through 15 first as kind of a prelude, then get to the, 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 the most important part that I want to share with you this morning, 16 and 17. You, however, Paul writing to Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Let's just go back over that real quickly. Paul's unpacking all the layers of his life. He's actually saying, my life has, has been all about bringing faith and life together for all these years, ever since I, I, I came to know Jesus Christ. You know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith. There's faith in life. Patience, love, endurance persecutions, sufferings. That's, he, he nets out the entire Christian life, the entire walk with Christ in those nine words. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of 
them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, you know, Timothy, there's going to be some tough times. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice he uses that word infancy, from infancy. In other words, when a little baby comes to this nursery and people start to love them, and a woman or a man sits in a rocking chair and holds that baby and maybe sings that, a song to that baby, or that baby's in the nursery. I don't know if, they, if they're playing my message in the nursery or not. I think I'll make sure that they are, because uh, the baby will be through osmosis, hearing my voice and taking this all in and, and remembering it years and years later. But from infancy, you know he's talking about this relational transmission process that's part of growing in faith, that's part of bringing faith and life together. That's how it works. You have learned over a period of your lifespan what it means to know and to follow Jesus Christ. And then here are the two big verses. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Righteousness is the way God thinks, the way God acts, so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture, the Bible, isn't something that somebody decided to write down. It was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we already heard. And I love what Paul writes to Timothy here. He says it's God-breathed. It's like God's breath is in it. It's like the, the essence of God is in this, so that this book is not like going into Barnes and Noble and seeing all those books. And I love to go into Barnes and Noble. It's not like coming into my office and seeing all those books because I used to spend all my time when I was a kid in the library and I loved it. And now I have my own little library and, and I love it. But it's not, it's not about that. This is the God-breathed truth. It's the very essence of God speaking to us. It changes us when we hear it. It does something to us when we allow it to come into our minds and our hearts. All scripture is God breathed. And here's one of my favorite verses about scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And when this was written, they knew what a, a two-edged sword was, was all about. And they knew what sharp was all about. And so when the writer of Hebrews goes, you know, I'm going to tell you about a two-edged sword that's, that's more amazing than any two-edged sword that you've ever seen. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. They already had a mental picture of what this was. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, it goes through to your soul. It has to do with something that's, that's huge and of both joints and marrow. There's a, a physicality to this too. There's a spirituality to this. There's a physicality to this. God's word is, is alive and it's active in your life and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In the NIV it says thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
So whenever it is that you have an attitude that's not quite right and you kind of feel it, you go, that attitude I had wasn't quite right. I was in that meeting and, and I had an attitude. I, I, mm, I, should, I should apologize or I should, I should think about that in the next meeting and, and not do that again. Or I, I know I've got these attitudes sometimes that I, that I struggle with. God's word is in the middle of that, is in the middle of your mind trying to do spiritual surgery to get those attitudes out, to move those attitudes over, to have something better be there, to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let me show you, show you how this works. Nehemiah chapter 8, reading out of the New American Standard Bible today, uh, it tells the story of what happened in a community when they had lost track of their way. They, were, they knew they were a spiritual community. They knew they were, they were a community that was oriented toward God and, and God being at work in their life, but they really lost track of God's word being active in their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. They lost track of bringing faith and life together all the time. Nehemiah 8, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And so imagine a gathering, much like we have right now, a gathering, and everybody's together. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. So they said, hey, bring Rock City over here. Hey, bring Edge down here. Hey, bring Common Ground down here. Anybody that can understand this really needs to be here and be a part of this. All who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at, the, at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. Get the picture? Here I am before you with a podium. There he was before them with a podium, and he's reading, and I'm reading. This is something that's been done for thousands and thousands of years because it defines who we are. It, it colors the question, like, who do we trust in with the brilliant colors of God? Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen. We say amen, amen here sometimes while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is a posture of worship and, and bowing down low or kneeling down is a, is a posture of worship too. Also, Jeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin. Interestingly, we have a new children's ministry director coming. Her name is Lindsay Bush. Her husband's name is Jamin. And here's his name right here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. These are the sort of like associate pastors, assistants, and they're explaining the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And then this great verse, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. When I'm up here and I'm reading and I'm trying to explain to you what it means, I'm doing the same thing. When he's up here and he's reading and, and trying to tell you what it means, we're doing the same thing. Whoever is up here 
trying to do that. We're doing the same thing that's been done for thousands of years because for faith and life to, to come together, you have to understand. You have to see how it relates to your life. You have to know that there are practical biblical principles that still are trustworthy today. And so they're, they're understanding and they're getting this. You know what happens? They start crying. They start mourning and weeping because it's been such a long time since they really applied God's word, let, let God apply his word to their hearts. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So he says, go have a party. Go invite people over. Go to other people's houses. Take stuff to eat. Just celebrate. Celebrate the fact that God is at work in our lives. Celebrate the fact that we can bring real faith and real life together. Make a party happen and rejoice because God is in the midst of your celebration. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. The party was to last a whole week. Why? Because scripture is designed to change us from the inside out, to help us to know what the real truth is and what real community is and what real ministry is and what real mission is. And that's how we know it's trustworthy. That's how we know it's from God. That's how we know that we are doing something that's one of the most important things we can ever do by listening to God's word. God's word becomes active in our lives and it changes us from the inside out. How can we know that the New Testament is a reliable set of documents? How can we know the New Testament is a reliable set of documents? I'm going to ask three questions and I'm going to have a friend uh, who I, I've met you know, just in general uh, for many, many years. His name is Josh McDowell. Help me to explain this to you from his book, The Reliability of Scripture. How can we know the New Testament is a reliable set of documents? Again, to appreciate the Scriptures, I think we need to make a comparison with other literature of antiquity. For example, Caesar and the Gallic Wars, 10 manuscripts survive. Plato, 7. Tacitus, of his annals, less than 20 manuscripts. Sophocles, 193. Suetonius, 8. Herodotus, 8. Thucydides. Many people consider one of the most accurate historians of antiquity. Only eight of his manuscripts even survive to check out his accuracy. Aristotle, 49. Aristophanes, 10. When it comes to the New Testament, as I pointed out earlier, we have 24,633 manuscripts. 24,633 manuscripts, and these are either whole manuscripts or parts of manuscripts. Um, I know many of you have been worried this week about Thucydides and that you only have eight things to compare and it's causing a lot of anxiety in your life. Um, some of us need to practice saying Thucydides because it's hard to say. But you know, Thucydides, eight, the New Testament, 24,633, which means they have such an abundance of material to look at that they can look at this and they can look at this and they could look at these 
different aspects of New Testament transmission as it was written over centuries. And they could know exactly what was written and exactly how it was written. And they could figure it all out. There's no question when it comes to the accuracy of the New Testament because of the number of documents available. So when somebody tries to say, well, how do you know? Or, well, how do we know they're not just stories? This is what you get a lot. They're not just stories. And how do you know they, don't, they didn't get changed? You have more to look at than any other ancient document. That's how you know that it hasn't been changed. That doesn't have to send us running for cover when somebody asks that. Here's another one. How can we know the Old Testament is a reliable set of documents. Josh McDowell. And so let me share with you, visually by video, how this was done. When they transcribed, they usually did it alone. Now in the New Testament, they would often have a reader with eight, nine, or 10 people that would listen to the reader and write it down. And then they had correctors that would go by to double check on them. But here, they would do it alone. They copied everything letter by letter. They could not touch. If they touched, they were considered to have made an error. Okay, so it was the letter by letter transmission process that ensured that the Old Testament maintained its accuracy. Okay, now it's time for congregation participation. I'm gonna rest over here for a minute. Everybody have a card, wave your card at me, please. Okay, it's got two questions on it. If you have a pen or a pencil, please take it out so you can do this exercise. And what you're gonna do is take, here's number one, is the Bible reliable? We're gonna start right there. And you're gonna copy this letter by letter backwards. So you're actually gonna start with a question mark one letter at a time. You can't do it all at once. You have to look and say, question mark, and you're gonna to write to the far right edge of the card, your question mark. You're gonna look back. You're gonna say E. You're gonna come back to the question mark. You're gonna put it to the left of the question mark, E. You're gonna look back. You're gonna see an L. You're gonna come back over. You're gonna put in the L. You're gonna look back. You're gonna see B. You're gonna come over and look at the B, and you're gonna keep doing that, that question mark. E, L, B, you're gonna see the A, you're gonna do that with the A. You're gonna look back, see the I, the I. Look back, see the L, L, and look back, see the E, and look back, see the R, and then you're gonna count. You're gonna go, hmm, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and let's see if I have nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So I know I have now 100% accuracy because of the specificity of my copying process. And you do the same thing with Bible. E, look there, write it. L, look there. B, look there. I, write it. B. See now what's going on in this room? You're all very bored with me. <laughs> and I'm very bored with you. This is a very tedious process. This is a highly focused process. Imagine this was your job and your job was to do the whole Bible like this. One letter at a time, counting everything, 
every single day. When you came to the name of God, you had to stop. You had to wash your hands. Then go back, use a special pen, write the name of God. Then put that pen down. Then go back to one letter at a time. And you did this day after day after day. And then there were the counters. And you knew you had an exact copy over thousands of years. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it. You see, in the caves outside of Jerusalem, in a place called Qumran, back around 1947-1948, there were a couple of shepherd boys, and they were goofing around, and they were you know, playing with each other and then throwing some rocks and things. And, and, and one of them threw a rock that went through a cave opening. And when the rock went through the cave opening, which they were probably thinking, this is pretty cool. We could see if we could throw it through the opening. They heard a clink. When they heard that clink, they got scared. It's like, oh, you're in trouble now. They went up there and they found these ancient jars. Inside of the jars were scrolls that had been there for a couple thousand years. These were to become the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they, they, it was getting late. It was getting dark. They went home. They went back the next day. They got some of the scrolls. They brought them in. They tried to sell them in the marketplace. Maybe somebody will buy these, these old things. Nobody wanted to buy them. And after a while, somebody heard about them. A young American researcher heard about them. And the story has never been the same since. Take a look. A young American scholar by the name of John Trevor got a hold of them, photographed them, sent the photographs off to Dr. William Foxwell Albright. Albright sent back a telegram or a letter saying you've made one of the great manuscript discoveries. They had discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. One scroll that they had discovered was a complete scroll of Isaiah going back to 125 BC. In one discovery, they bridged a thousand years of transcription. When they took the manuscript of 1008 AD, compared it with the one 1000, or 125 BC, the exactness was so great, one scholar in London said it was miraculous. In fact, Dr. Atkinson of Cambridge University, who was the under librarian at that time, and a professional in the area of manuscripts, made this observation. He said, quote, it's little short of miraculous. A thousand years. You have Isaiah over here. You have Isaiah over here. It's the same. How could that even be? They didn't have a copy machine. They just had people who copied one letter at a time. That's how it can be. Because they knew that God's word was so sacred that they didn't want to make one mistake. So when anybody says, well, over time it got changed. No, it didn't. With the specificity of the Hebrew transmission process, it didn't change. When somebody says, well, the New Testament, how do you really know? You've got 24,000 plus documents, partial or full. The story hasn't changed. And people always throw these questions out, but they really don't go anywhere. They have no validity. And most of the questions come out of hearts that are afraid to trust God or come out of hearts that think that somehow we're going to figure this out ourselves. Somehow we're going to look out into the universe and someday it's going to all figure itself out. But God, through his love and grace, has put all the stories together. 
in 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, so we can know the truth, so we can know who to trust, and we can know that Jesus Christ sets us free. Can I know God personally? There's a book called Good Faith. It's been out for about a year or so. Good Faith. Being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. And that's kind of where we are today. Society kind of thinks like we're sort of irrelevant and extreme. I just showed you how, how relevant we still are. And how relevant the Bible still is. And in this book they detail the new moral code. Which is sort of a shifting of morality in our society. And I'm just going to read you one, maybe two aspects of the new moral code that they detail. Number one, the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of U.S. adults believe that. But here's the kicker. 76% of practicing Christians believe that. Somebody give me a snicker bar because I'm about to go crazy. Um, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of the U.S. adult population believes that. 76% of practicing Christians believe that. And so we, we have come under such pressure today that even our own Christian culture is kind of shaky and wobbly, which is why it's so important to know that you are secure in the Bible. You are safe in the Bible. You can trust the Bible. You can build your life upon the Bible. The Bible is trying to say something to you all the time. My son went to the UVA Kentucky basketball game yesterday up in, in Charlottesville. He sent me a picture of an archway, a brick archway somewhere on the campus at UVA. And there was a beautiful, beautiful inscription from the book of Proverbs on that archway. And I'm sure people walk around and they, they maybe walk right by. But if you stop and you look at it, it gives you this sense of stability. It gives you this sense of an anchor in your life. And sometimes I walk around New York City and I see the same thing on the side of a building or over, there's, a, there's a grocery store down near Wall Street that's got scripture kind of over the door of the grocery store. It, it's, it's there all the time. And it gives us the parameters of our lives. And that's because of this. John chapter 17. This is where it gets real personal, real fast. Jesus said these things. Then raising his eyes in prayer, he said, Father, it's time. It's time. Display the bright splendor of your son so the son in turn may show your bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so he might give real and eternal life to all in his charge. And this, and this is the real and eternal life. This is Jesus himself saying these words, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your very own splendor, the very splendor I had in your presence before there was a world. And that's where Stephen Hawking never figured it out. As a scientist, 
He was searching. He was looking. But he could only see what was there in the physical universe. He didn't grasp that there was something before that. There was something with God's fingerprints on it before that. Before there was a world is the truth that the Bible tells us about. And so when you accept Jesus Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, it's the beginning of something. It kind of starts out with exploring. It starts out with asking questions. Explore God. Ask, ask your questions. Then it, it comes to a place of acceptance. And in acceptance, we realize that, that we have to bring this truth into our lives. That Jesus is God, was God, will always be God. That he died on a cross for us long ago. That he, he longs to bring us home, like he talked about in John 14. He longs to bring us home to be with him so that where he is, we will be forever. And then you begin to grow. You begin to grow. And it's a slow process. It starts out, somebody's rocking you in a nursery, singing you, Jesus loves me. And you just keep on going. And then you, you grow up and you get to a place where, where faith and life and trying to bring that into a dynamic union for relevant Christian living is the main focus of your life. And then you start to move into maturity where you, you stretch and you suffer and you sanctify yourself. Sanctification is just a process of trying to think like God thinks, trying to act like God acts, think like God thinks, act like God acts. Let the, let the sharp sword of God's word get into those attitudes that need to change. You get to maturity and then you get to that place of whatever it takes and finding real Christian community where you don't have to be perfect because you love a Jesus who was perfect for you. And you begin to understand that forgiveness is a way of life. You begin to understand that ministry and mission have to come together. This is what we say. Everyone connected to ministry and mission. Everyone looking like Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're not connected in some way to ministry and mission, get connected to ministry and mission. That's, that's what's going to define your life. That's what's going to, to, to shape your life for the future. I was with Craig Rochelle a couple days ago, and, uh, and right in front of me he said, right in front of me he said this. He said, I used to believe that discipleship was getting a bunch of people in a room, you know, kind of studying something. He goes, now I believe it's getting people out into the world with their gifts and watching them do something. There's stuff for you to do. Bob Goff, love God, do stuff. There's stuff for you to do. And it all comes into play because God has given us the truth so that we can know him, so we can build our lives upon the truth. And as we do that together, we call ourselves the church. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Last question. Who do you trust? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can give our lives to you, that we can trust you, that we can know the truth of your word. We're thankful for the stability of the Bible, the way the Bible just has stood foundationally as the directional power of our lives for, for so many decades and centuries and for each and every moment 
for the life we're living today, Father. Help us to, to see our future through your word. Help us to be defined by your word. Be at work in our lives by the double-edged sword of your word. Oh, Father, do the work that you are doing in us and through us as we open our hearts and minds to you again today. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.